Amen. Second uh, Peter 2. We're going to do this last paragraph. Then we'll be a couple of lessons or so in chapter 3. And then uh, if, if you want to have input on where we go next, feel free to suggest. But uh, we'll be done in a few weeks here in Second Peter. We're at verse 17. We looked at verse 17 last week. But we'll begin in that paragraph right there, uh, speaking again of the false teachers, uh, the ministry of the false teachers, how it is affecting the church and the people in the church. Verse 17, they are waterless springs and mists driven by the storm, by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So there is the the ministry, if you will, of the false teachers. Uh, Verse 17 that we looked at last week, the waterless springs and the... uh, Mists that are driven by the storm and the gloom of utter darkness that's been reserved for them. There's your how to spot the problem is to notice that their what they presume or what they show uh, and promise they can't produce. A spring with no water, uh, clouds with no rain. Uh, Jude chapter, Jude verse. Jude verse 12 uh, seems to be uh, what um, maybe Peter knew of, but the language is so, so much the same. Verse 12 of Jude. These, uh, these are hidden reefs. At your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. 
wild waves of the sea, casting the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Much like that. And Peter sort of adapts that language, or the language is much like Jude's anyway, of waterless springs, no water, mist driven by the storm, uh, impotent. There's nothing uh, uh, to change anything. Utter darkness and reserved uh, those two words, the darkness and reserve, Peter's used it throughout uh, these, these two letters. Actually, First Peter, we're, we're saved to proclaim uh, the darkness out of which we have been called if we're Christians. Uh, and in chapter 2, verse 4, he mentions, uh, if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, uh, Peter has that darkness as the uh, result of sin and ultimately the utter darkness. Uh, and then this reserve, they're reserved for. They're, the, they're not judged yet, except that, that the verdict has already been uh, made and their judgment for sure is reserved and kept for them in heaven. Uh, Peter uses that idea that uh, we're kept by God, he says. We're reserved by God, using the same word. And then uh, verse 18, for their loud boasts of folly. If you have a new American, he says, uh, arrogant words, uh, arrogant words of vanity. So it's kind of just a bunch of words with no uh, substance, emptiness. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, I was thinking about, ever so often we'll go to half-price books. Our grandkids like to go to half-price books and find cheap books, used books. And so when, they, when we do, when we take them there, uh, I go to the Christianity section, kind of uh, cruise through the Christianity section. Uh, and uh, there's not much there. I don't know if... One of the commentators talking about the theological, old theological, used theological bookshops in England says there's piles of unsaleable rubbish, once the latest thing in theological audacity. Well, I have to say, I was in a, a, a shop in England and found about five or six books for $5 that I pay, was paying $30 for here in the States, so I was happy to have found what I was looking for when I was there. But uh, if you uh, think about these books, these, the, the books on the latest fashion, the books on the latest counseling, the newest counseling idea, the newest theological trend, uh, they're all over and they're just waterless springs, many of them. If you're 25 years or more in the Southern Baptist life, you might remember one, uh, These what I'm saying are fashionable issues. What was an issue, not an issue anymore. What was popular, not popular anymore. Uh, it was about 25 years ago, uh, a course called Experiencing God. I forget the guy's name. Blackaby, Henry Blackaby. His idea was 
ferret out, find where God is at work, and go help the work of God there. Uh, and it was a, kind of a, it was very popular. Uh, it, and it, it was, the idea was to get people out, outside of what they were doing, and go find the work of God and get involved. Uh, it, that's what I think of as Jesus when they come to him and say, uh, one morning after that night of healing, everybody who's there that evening is healed. It's, I believe it's in Capernaum. And the next morning, Jesus is praying, and he's, he's out by, his, by himself. And they come, and they say, he's, they're lining up again this morning. Let's go have some more fun. God, you worked well. Let's keep doing it. And Jesus says, no, we're going to the next town. It's time to go to the next town. The gospel has to go further. Um, so I'm not disparaging experiencing God, but it's something that was so popular and it's no longer popular. Uh, early 2000s, some of you will remember uh, the new perspective on Paul. Some, one author had finally figured out what Paul really meant in the book of Romans. And, and we just didn't understand how the Jews were practicing their faith and how Paul was dealing with it in Romans. And it was called A New Perspective on Paul. And within, I mean, very, very popular. The man is still popular. But that idea is now, it went the way of the dodo bird almost. Nobody talks about the new perspective on Paul. Uh, it just didn't last. It was a new fad, kind of. Uh, uh, and, and maybe it's more active than I know of, but it's not like it used to be for sure. Uh, or we have the purpose-driven church that then went to purpose-driven life that went, went, what, 40 days of purpose and, and you know, just on and on. And they, they, don't, um, they don't age well, right? When we've got books there by the guys that have been dead for 250 years. Those books age well. Uh, what makes a classic a classic? Okay. Truth. Yeah. Uh, how many of you have read and studied Shakespeare? Read and studied Shakespeare. Okay, we got a few, right? I mean, we got a few who academics who actually read and studied Shakespeare, but Shakespeare lives on. And uh, F. W. Borum says these classics live on because they're they're true. I mean, Shakespeare's not writing true stuff, but because they're good books and they are uh, kept alive by a passionate few. These Shakespeare fanatics will keep alive these books. I mean, Knowing God by Packer is one book that I think about that's been for I don't know how many years. Uh, so, yeah, there's classics and then there's books that just don't age well. We do our best to call the ones that don't age well. Spend your money if you're going to buy books. I know most... Many don't buy books anymore. If you're going to buy books, buy books that last. That you'll pull off the shelf on a regular basis. Your money will go farther and your mind will be stretched, usually. But anyway, right, truth, 
and then keeping it alive by those who appreciate the authors. Uh, but that's kind of what these guys are. The, you know, again, I, the oldest, old ways are not always the best, and new ways are not always bad. Right? It's mat- what matters is the truth. These guys are not uh, teaching the truth, and we're going to see that as we go. They're promising new things with these empty words, uh, flowery words, unable to deliver on their promises, creating great expectations. Uh, and yet, the greater the expectation, the more opportunity for disappointment. And so the disappointments become greater than the expectations that were produced. Uh, Jeremiah talking about his day. Uh, my people have committed two evils. They have uh, forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water, waterless cisterns, waterless springs. God says, the Lord says, uh, I am the fountain of living waters. They've forsaken it. Jesus promises that he would quench our spiritual thirst, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, And then use us, actually, he says, and John 7, he used us then to deliver the first thirst-quenching waters to others. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, the, the, But they have turned away. They're not full of living water. What they're saying is without water, without power, without anything, and notice their, uh, their strategy, verse 18, speaking loud boasts of emptiness or folly or vanity, they entice, Tony, that's a fishing lure word, uh, they're enticing, they're luring, uh, uh, angling for, notice who they're trying to entice, sensual passions of the flesh with by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So there's a strategy strategy there. They're enticing them with teachings of sensual passions. They're not they're they're using the sensual passions. You can have your spiritual cake and you can eat it too. You know, it's sort of like uh Eastern mysticism, the Eastern religions here, where if you go to India and the Hindus in India are, are, are talking about reincarnation, uh, they don't want to be reincarnated again. Life is horrible, right? Um, and so they're trying through uh, try, their religion, they're trying to break the cycle of reincarnation, so they don't have to go through this again. Well, that comes here, this idea of reincarnation here with the New Age movement in the 70s and 80s, and then it's just played, it's, it's playing in, in diff, with different kinds of cl- dress on it, but it's the idea of reincarnation where, ah, if we don't make it here, 
we'll just come back and have another chance next life, and it's not so bad, right? Life is good. Life is good. Let's just be, you know, so you, you can have your spiritual cake, be a new ager or a Hindu or whatever, American style, and if you're not good enough to break the cycle of reincarnation, that's okay. You come back with another life and another life. You see, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be spiritual after a fashion. And, and it seems like they're kind of offering this, that you can have your desiring passions and have a spiritual side to your life also. Um. <clears throat> And they're preying on these Christians who are trying to break free from the old life. It seems like they're, it's new Christians. It's unstable souls. Back in verse 14, he talks about the unstable uh, souls. They're who, those who are barely escaping. So they're teaching errors about issues of life, um, uh, uh, of their new life, if they're converted that are the hardest to change, the old habits to break, though you now have the Spirit of God when you first become a Christian and you're fighting to get away from if you were from where you came from, some of those old patterns of life are hard to break. And so they are saying you don't need to. Come to our Bible study and you don't have to Fight against those old ways. You'll be spiritual, and then you'll also they'll use they'll they'll lure them they'll uh, they'll uh, entice them with essential passions, and that's the error. People, Peter's already said in one four we look, we saw this, the Christians escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, these false teachers are saying just the opposite. Keep your sinful desire. Keep your corruption, uh, which is typically what religion does. Uh, uh, you, you can have a religious side of your life and you don't have to make a serious effort. But waterless springs and mists that are driven by the storm won't last. They'll never Satisfy your soul. But that's what they're teaching, and that's what Peter is trying to point out to these folks. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. There's their promises. Uh, they're, they're slaves themselves, but they're promising a message of freedom. Freedom is easily misunderstood. You know what, what, what is Freedom. What's Christian freedom, Christian liberty? The liberty not to sin. What? Life in Christ. And we're free in Christ. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But it's free. It's not free to do whatever because we're saved. It's free to not sin. It's the, it's the freedom to live uh, according to God's way, to do whatever we ought. We're free to be holy. Um, live as pe- in First Peter, he said, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of Christ. So we're living as slaves. We're, we're freed 
We were enslaved in sin and were freed by Christ to become slaves to Christ. Uh, what's that? Yes. Yes, that's the beautiful picture of redemption. What's that? Yep, we have new masters. That's why, well, look at the rest of that uh, verse 19. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. It's just ironic. They're they're preaching freedom while they're shackled in their chains of gloomy darkness, of the depravity, the corruption. Uh, And then no one's without a master is what he says there in verse 19. If the false teachers don't follow Christ as his servants, they're serving sin. They're serving sin as their master. Paul in Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So their target group for these false teachers and uh, false teachers today are... uh, uh, gullible and or novice new Christians, <clears throat> uh, untaught, unsteady, unstable uh, people. Their offer is freedom. I, I think about a, a gospel of free grace, a free grace gospel. Is it a gospel? Can you be saved? But you have to turn. You have to turn from your sin to God. You you turn away from something to come to Christ because before Christ, you're going the wrong way, the other way. Uh, So you have to turn. Um, Their promises of the return of Christ we'll see in the next chapter they, uh, rather than submitting to the authority of the apostles, these uh, false teachers, <coughs> uh, they're, they're free to, you're free to think whatever you want. You don't have to follow the apostles, uh, and you don't have to really worry about the return of Christ and the final accounting and the final judgment. Uh, where is his promise of his coming? You've been, they've been talking, you know, they've been talking about Jesus coming back, and where is that? So they kind of uh, uh, minimize that message. And, and it's just wrapped up. Their message is boastful, uh, empty words. The pulpiteers, they know how to paint a story. They know how to uh, uh, pretty up the message, but there's nothing inside of it. Uh, and so it's a non-judgmental kind of ethic, attitude given or uh, approach offered to immature Christians. And it sounds very gospely, sounds very grace-like. And they're not, and 
many are not able to discern. So we get sucked into these different kind of things, different kinds of teachings that are, are not necessarily uh, horribly heretical, and yet they're enticing, and they don't fulfill. They can't produce. There's no sustainability to that kind of a life. Um, they don't know that they bring their message to people who don't know enough to reject it. And their self-indulgent message, and so that's everywhere, isn't it? The self-indulgent message, they're not able to see that it's just masked by, uh, masked as spirituality or presented as spirituality. And it's just a mask of uh, their... Uh, lawlessness, their licentiousness, their immorality. So the last three verses really kind of lays out their sorry condition of these false teachers. Remember, we went through three Old Testament examples, fallen angels, if God can deal with the fallen angels and if he can deal with the fallen world and the sinful cities of Sodom. So we have the uh, angels who fell. We have uh, the world that was uh, destroyed by the flood. And then we, uh, Peter laid out what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah and that city was done away with. Well, they were, all three of those were lawless and full of debauchery with sin. Uh, and these false teachers have the same thing and therefore their destiny is the same. Verse 20, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them the defilements of the world and the last state has become worse for them than the first. And as he goes on through, they are facing eternal judgment. Uh, so, uh, they have the same destiny as these other three examples he gave, the fallen angels, uh, those who died in the flood, and in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and they are they have the same destiny, and they're just until the final day of judgment. Peter is teaching these believers to be sure that they will be judged. The utter gloom of darkness is reserved for them, and God will keep it reserved for them. Uh, he's not, chapter 3 will look at the final day, but he's concerned in chapter 2 about today. Uh, and uh, that they, their destiny is set. Again, the verdict has been announced, but it's not been executed yet. Uh, they're entangled again into the, and overcome in the defilements of the world. They're enslaved. Uh, last week, we saw irrational uh, animals born to be caught, and they're caught, they're trapped it's, uh, uh, in their sin. Uh, and I don't know what you think about after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, again entangled, 
in them and overcome in the last day, worse for them than the first, worse off than before they made a profession of faith? Did they lose their salvation? I mean, they, they came, they escaped the defilements through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? And take the whole of the gospel to this passage. Um, we know that's not saving knowledge because these are false teachers whose destiny is hell, eternal judgment. So let me just walk through just a few points uh, to let Scripture interpret Scripture. The salvation of Christ, that Christ won, is full and free, right? It's full, it's free, it's final. The salvation that Christ won. Uh, the cross is the solution for our dilemma, our, our uh, enmity with God, our alienation from God, and he paid the price once for all for all who would believe. We go to Romans 3 and 4. We go to Hebrews. But this once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So the salvation of Christ is full and free. We start there. Uh, there will always be non-Christians in the church. Is that true? I thought we were regenerate church membership. <laughs> yeah. People are deceived, but they can give a testimony that sounds good and they're they're better. You know, I mean, a couple of weeks we'll hit the parable of the soils in Luke. Uh yes, there will always be non-Christians in the church. We're diligent, but we can't we can't dig into people's hearts. We, we only God can do that. Um uh, and, and so it's not our job to to declare you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Oh no, you're not saved. You're, it's not our job to do that because we can't know that. <laughs> I didn't. I was pointing back behind you. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, we can't. We can't. Not our job to do. But it is our job. Uh, it's responsibility to be as diligent as we can to make sure people know the gospel. They profess. They understand they're sinners. They've repented. They profess. And then their life begins to match that. Um, we must do our best to do that. Affirm a proper understanding of the gospel backed by authentic Christian living. And uh, then call out those who live as though they're not part of Christ's flock. Live as though they're not part of Christ's flock, right? We treat them as if they are, If ultimately, if they won't repent, when we uh, talk to professing Christians about sin that is obvious in their life and they won't repent, we eventually treat them as if they are not Christian. But we don't have the privilege or the right to say you're not, but we can say you're not acting according to the word of God. 
So there will always be tares in the church. There will always be non-Christians in the church. And so Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Uh, and, of course, the Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Uh, the third point, uh, first, salvation of Christ is final, full final. Uh, there will always be Christians in the church. It is extraordinarily difficult to tell a real from a fake Christian on the outside. And that's the only place we have. Right? Um, Say that again. That's good. Theology does not quicken the conscience and soften the heart. It actually hardens both. Okay. If it does not encourage the commitment of faith, it reinforces the detachment of unbelief. If it fails to promote humility, it inevitably feeds pride. So the Packer type people, the Puritans, would say theology leads to doxology, worship. And if your theology doesn't cause you to worship God, your theology's in there or you're, you're not right with God, your heart's not right. Yes? It's dangerous to have good theology and not live that way, or at least uh, uh, some sort of knowledge of the theology. That's what we see right here. So it's, it's difficult. Judas. Judas was part of the 12 that Jesus commissioned to go do miracles and take the gospel out. We'll see that in Luke. He's part, he was part of the 12. I, I don't know if he just stood by the side and let everybody else do it because he couldn't. Or I don't. But he was part of the 12. And he was not. Um, uh, of course, the other clear example is Paul's helper in, in prison in Rome, Demas. And as he writes Colossians and as he writes Philemon and he lists all these, a list of people who say, we send greetings to you, Church of Colossae. And Demon, Demas is one of those who sends greetings, who is helping Paul in his ministry while he's in prison in Rome. And then when he's in prison the second time, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Did he come back? I mean, could Demas have come back and really have been a true Christian? Yes, we don't know that he did. It's not recorded for us that he did. And Paul said he forsook his profession. Uh, and Jesus says, of course, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, and, and, and their claim is we did miracles. I mean, we cast out demons, we did all kinds of uh, miraculous works. And he says, I never knew you. So only Jesus can judge our hearts. We can't. We can, we're not judging each other when we talk to one another about what we're doing in our life. 
right? We judge when we begin to try to discern motives, when we try to tell each other what the motives are. We all need to discern our hearts and the motives, but we can't always do that because our heart will lie to us sometimes. But we're, we can tell how we live, and we're not being judgmental when we talk to each other about the ways we're living. Uh, fourth, in cases where there is blatant disobedience, the church must discipline. The church leadership must discipline. Um, I think I would, uh, Dick Lucas maybe, notorious cases where words or actions are so ensconced in a person's life, uh, the elders have to act for the good of the person and the good of the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, whether it be personal or in the church in particular. Uh, always with an aim to restore, but the church will not be pure until the Lord Jesus returns and sorts out the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, whatever metaphor you choose to pick. The church will be uh, a, mixed, uh, a mixed group. Uh, five, the real test for ourselves is whether we're merely hearers of God's word or doers also. Uh, we all sin. Um, often, God's word will rebuke us. That's one of the four li- there in 2 Timothy 3 about the power of the God's word, of God's word. Uh, but knowing that we've sinned, being rebuked by the word, then confessing our sin and asking God's help to turn from that sin is a far cry from someone who refuses to bow their knee to the Lordship of Christ. Um, look, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Jesus says that's bogus. That's that, that's that doesn't work. Um, if your walk is not resembling your talk, it's time for self-examination. Uh, So pe- these people, people heard the gospel, seemed to accept it, but then they turned away. To what? At least the disciples knew that, right? Jesus asked them when the crowds were turning away from him, you guys going to go too? He said, where are we going to go? But many do turn away. Uh, yeah, but to where? Back to the vomit, back, back to the mud pit, like the pig. Uh, a sixth, uh, some measure of self-examination is spiritual growth is always helpful. But I think we temper that with some measure of self-examination. Don't go too far inward. Go to Christ. Focus on Christ and then examine, compare, examine your life compared to what the Word of God says and who Christ is. We're concerned about our sin and Jesus and ask Christ to forgive us and equip us to serve him all as well. Uh, Jesus' promise of eternal life and protection stands. But if there's a dullness to sin, a reluctance to 
uh, confess, to admit there's a refusal to bow to Christ, we should be alarmed. And again, Dick, uh, Dick Lucas says, that's a classic diagnosis of unbelief. Our dullness to sin, reluctance to confess, always justifying, a stubborn refusal to bow to what Christ calls you to, bow to Christ himself, that classic diagnosis of unbelief. So run to Christ, confess your sin to him. He knows anyway. And he says he'll receive you. He's promised to welcome all sinners who come home, who run to him, who come to him in faith. And if this self-examination and you realize you're dull or you're uh, reluctant or you're stubborn, if it doesn't cause you to run, of him, run to him in a period of time or in certain areas of your Life, then your self-examination should lead you to conclude you're not a believer. If you want, if you figure out you're not living according to Christ's ways, and you will not repent of that, Christians repent. Maybe not today, but Christians repent. Uh, yeah. You know, and if, if, if this is happening in the life of a professing Christian, uh, the gospel will seem restrictive, the commandments will be burdensome, uh, it'll be a chore, and uh, that's a serious sin. It's what Peter's trying to get across. Notice they have known... Verse 20, uh, for if after they escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Again, that can't be saving knowledge. They knew the Lord Jesus. They knew about him for sure, uh, but not as a Christian knows Jesus. They knew the way of righteousness. They knew Christ's uh, call on their life, the commitment that Christ calls them to live by. But that's the standard they're rejecting. Uh, Here's a description, chapter 3, verse 12. Waiting for and hastening, hastening, and we'll talk about that, the coming of the day of God. That's a Christian. Waiting for and hastening the coming day. Uh, But that's the day that these guys refuse to believe in scoffing uh, in verse 3 of chapter 3, scoffing at Jesus is going to come back. Whatever their public profession, they've turned back from the holy commandment. 
God's gospel delivered to them by the apostles, and now they scoff at it. Uh, And then the two uh, proverbs, one one biblical proverb, uh, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the other one must be a proverb of the day or just a, a proverbial saying that the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's the condition of these folks. Uh, I know we have um, uh, dog lovers. Uh, These people in these days were not dog lovers. They were not your little uh, uh, poodle poo. I can't remember all the names of all these things. (laughs) Peekapoos and... (laughs) This is not the kinds of dogs that they're talking about. The dog was a repulsive scavenger. I know your dog's not. You've been tamed, and and your dog is okay. But these dogs were, uh, I mean, do not give dogs what is holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs, Jesus says. Now, when, when do you quit evangelizing and not cast your pearls before the swine or give to the dogs, that's not always an easy decision. But at some point, you got to, uh, as we'll see here in Luke, you got to shake the dust off your sandals and go on. Uh, Philippians 3, 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Blessed are those who wash their robes. We read in Revelation 22, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral and a whole list of those who are not inside the city gates. So dogs in that day were different from our dogs. Undomesticated scavengers. And so these folks, Peter keeps painting uh, on the same, I, I, my, uh, this may be a little artsy. For me, that's something different. I don't, I don't know if it really, he keeps painting on the same canvas. Verse 12, look at verse 12. We already looked at Irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. These folks, the dog returns to its own vomit. He keeps up that irrational animal instinctive behavior natural sensual passions that animals all live by that's these folks and they know the truth Uh, they displayed uh, repentance and reformation of some sort apparently but they show nothing they show that their nature has nature hasn't been changed uh and this is the last evidence. What, whatever they vomited up from the inside or washed off on the outside, nothing has fundamentally changed. Uh, worse off than they were at the beginning. It made me think of uh, Jesus, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, because their message was not the gospel, 
when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much the child of hell as yourselves. The point, what I've seen here is people who respond to the gospel. They may be, you know, the, uh, they come with tears, an emotional response after they get wooed uh, into a decision and it doesn't stick. And so a month, six months, two years later, they walk away from the Lord and then you try to evangelize them. That I tried Jesus. He didn't work for me because he rejected a partial gospel, a shallow gospel. He didn't reject the true gospel and thought he tried Jesus. Jesus will change his life, your life, anybody's life, who hear the gospel and then repent and turn to Christ in faith. Whoever believes will have eternal life and no one will pluck them out of Christ's hand. Any comment before we go? Seems like it's time to go. We good? All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is clear. We thank you that you save your people. That all who believe, all who turn to Christ, will inherit eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, honest with each other. Lord, we thank you that whom you save, you keep. Because if we could be lost, we'll be lost once we're saved. I thank you that you are the one who keeps us. Help us to discern our true condition before you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.